It is great to be with you, great to be at the campus here. You know, we often, or from time to time, we'll mention the men and women who lead our worship, but uh, uh, I told Dave, David Mills this morning, saying, the back said, you know, the, the audio mix is perfect this morning, and that's because of Dave Bechtel today. So let's say thanks to Dave Bechtel. We always hear about what's wrong with our audio, but from time to time it's good to say what's right. So thanks, Dave, and thanks for all of your, your team that makes it happen. You know, the account of Abram, Abraham, uh, covers roughly one quarter of the book of Genesis. It begins in Genesis chapter 12 and takes us through Genesis chapter 25. It is a life of faith. It's a life of flawed faith. Yet Abram is recalled by Christ and by New Testament writers as a friend, a friend of God, as a man of great faith. And so it's compelling to study not only the character, to compare and contrast our own lives, but even more importantly, to understand God's design and plan for this man that he chose in Genesis chapter 12. From Ur the Chaldees, his father Terah is a moon god worshiper. And he calls Terah, he calls Abram out of Ur the Chaldees to leave his family, his home, his people, to go to a place that he doesn't know where he's going, and he believes God and does it. Sort of. He still has this entourage with him. Lot, his nephews with him. Lot's families with him. Terah, his father. Did he leave his family? Mm, sort of. And God, in his great kindness and mercy, will walk with Abram, a sojourn metaphor, literal and metaphorical, where he'll travel around as God will unfold in Genesis 12, today 15, later 19, 17 and 19. This covenant promise that he has made to the man Abram. God's choice of Abram is not because he was better than others, not because he was a head and shoulders taller, not because he was a man of great faith. God's choice of Abram was to bless the world. Because through the man Abram will come Messiah. Through the man Abram will come the nation Israel. Through the man Abram will come God's promises to you and to me. Chapters 12, verse 10, through really chapter 25, are often called the waiting, the waiting for the promise. We're going to read this story in Genesis 12. We've looked at in great detail about the covenant promise made, and now Abram's waiting. And the waiting creates impatience. Abram and Sarai will sojourn. They will move around. Rob did a fabulous job explaining that. And keep in mind this entourage of people moving. To some degree, when they exhaust the land, they have to move again. And it's always an issue of water. Water is the key issue in the Middle East and antiquity. It is even today. And without water, there is no life. Uh, Abram's journey will lead the promise and the patriarch into danger. He will go down into the Negev. He will go down into areas that will risk his life and lots. And God will, quote, have to rescue his chosen servant, Abram, and his nephew on more than one occasion. <laughs> Abram will lie. He'll be deceptive. But nevertheless, he's called a man of faith, a friend of God. In Genesis 15, today we'll see the first six verses. Next week, God willing, the rest of the chapter, um, two very important confirmations of this covenant promise. How the cutting of this covenant is going to be a vivid visual reminder for Abram, Abraham, Sarah, Sarai, and generations to come of what the, the seriousness of God's promise to his people that cannot be thwarted. It will not be easy. 
Abram will fail again and again. And so this character, this flawed character, uh, will have a relationship with Hagar. More than likely an Egyptian maidservant acquired because of the lie in Egypt. And that son Ishmael will be no small tension in the storyline by the time we get to chapter 17. Again, God will appear to Abram, not only here in 15, but in 17. He'll appear to him and he'll reassure him of his promise. He'll reassure the patriarch how he's going to use him and bless him. But there's this implausible promise, at least a span from here to Genesis 17, of 25 years of waiting, and he still doesn't have a child. Next year, God says, you'll have a child. After all this time, why should he believe him for yet another year? It's been 25 years since the last time you talked to me, and I still don't have a son. I have no children in my home. Once again, Abram will intervene to save Lot. It'll ultimately end up in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They will sojourn to the Negev on more than one occasion. And by chapter 21, we'll begin to see the fulfillment of the promise that he made in Genesis chapter 12, that through him, Isaac would be born. Unfortunately, the birth of the true son, the firstborn son, will be a conflict against Ishmael. And there's some 17-year gap between the two give or take. And by the time he's a toddler, let's envision the older half-brother is harassing the younger Isaac, and he will be sent away. It'll be a grief to Abram's heart, Abraham's heart. It'll be a burden to Hagar and Ishmael, but that is another part of the story. Today, I want you to see two confirmations. If you don't have your Bible open, please open it to Genesis chapter 15 as we look at the first six verses today. The two confirmations have to do with the word of the Lord coming to Abram. And we've talked about a theophany and a Christophany. As a review, these are pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ. Before he was born a baby, he appeared in the Old Testament. And we have one here, I would argue, today. Each time the word of the Lord is going to come to Abram, his servant, with the word will be two visual reminders that Abram will be given. One will be an elaborate ceremony that we'll look at next weekend. I want to give you the so what as we begin, if I may. The so what being a little bit hard to put our arms around, but to say it as succinctly as I can, God's promises are never in danger even when we doubt. God's promises are never in danger even when Abram doubts, even when you and I doubt. Our experience always tries to tell us otherwise, but God's word is true. God's word is faithful, God is faithful, and his promises cannot be thwarted. Even when we put his promises in jeopardy, even when we put our lives in jeopardy, it will not stop the sovereign orchestrated plan of Yahweh Elohim. Now it's a mind bender to think that we can live in sin, we can choose a path that endangers God's promise, and God's promise still can't be thwarted. Yes, there'll be consequences in our human experience when we choose to live in sin. We choose to go the wrong path, but it will not stop or thwart or gum up God's promise the way he has designed it. God's promises are never in danger, even when we doubt. So the application of that, so what, is we're to trust God even when our field of vision is very small. Our field of vision is a first-person pronoun. I, me, my. My marriage, my family, my life, my job, what I want, all good things. 
what I want my children to believe, to embrace, how I want them to grow up, how they're to have my grandchildren. It's all about I, me, my. We plan our jobs, our careers, we save money, we buy a lake house, we travel, we vacation, we have aspirations and dreams, we want to invest well so we can, quote, retire and enjoy our life and our hard work. And we have this picture of I, me, and my, because that's our Western field of vision of American Christianity. It's not bad or horrible or wrong, but the maturing believer in Christ has to expand his or her vision. And it's not just about the first person pronoun. It's about others. Certainly about family, certainly about training our children, certainly about spoiling our grandchildren, all those good things. But at some level, it has to move beyond that to how do we see God using our life, our faithful living in his plan, in his design. Well, if you have your Bible open, Genesis 15, let's look at verse 1 to begin with. Where God's promise is both true and reliable, and he'll bless just as he's promised. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. This is Yahweh's self-revelation. If you have a new American Standard Bible, one of the many reasons I argue for the NASB is because of some of the consistency they do. If you have a NASB, the O-R-D in the word Lord is our small capital letters. Other times they're lowercase. They do that intentionally. And there's one page, maybe two in the Bible, in front of your NASB Bible, that explains why they do that. I'll leave that to you to read. If you're bored while I'm preaching, read it. It might be of more benefit for you. But to understand Lord, Lord God, Lord, uh, all the different ways, God, how our Bibles render that from English, from the Hebrew to the English, the Greek to the English, are very helpful. Yahweh uh, is the word here. And Yahweh is self-revealing. When Jesus says in John 7's record, the seven I am's, the way, the truth, and the life, the bread of life, the light of the world, so on and so forth, those I am's are self-revelatory. In other words, if Jesus didn't tell those people who he was, they would never know. When Peter identifies him as the Christ, he says, flesh and blood has not revealed that, but my Father in heaven. Christ has to reveal himself. God has to reveal. You don't find God. You don't decide, I think I like Jesus. You don't decide Christianity is the way to go. God reveals himself to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Here, this self-revelatory part of God's experience to Adam, to Noah, here to Abram, later to Moses. He's appearing to him, and notice your Bible says, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. We read this so quickly, men and women. When you read that phrase, you should stop and pause. God is speaking to somebody in the Bible. God is talking to a human being. He is self-revealing his plan to bless the world. He uses two phrases here we want to look at. I'm a shield and a reward. Each term, I would argue, goes back to chapter 14. In chapter 14, 20, it's a throwback where God Most High delivered them from the battle. And in chapter 14, 23, uh, he connects the reward to the king of Sodom where he refuses to take, in our vernacular, even a shoelace from the king of Sodom's spoils. What's God saying here? Your reward is not going to come from the spoils of a war. And you didn't win that war because of your trained men. You won because I delivered you. 
I'm your shield and I am your reward. Now, I will take a little fine point on the second phrase. Your reward shall be very great. Not to split too fine a hair, but I would say it's more accurate to say, Abram, I'm your shield. Abram, I am the one who will reward you. He's not saying, Abram, I'm gonna get, you're going to be greatly rewarded because of your faith. Which if you read it too quickly or too casually, that might be the conclusion. I'm your shield and because you're a believer, because you believe in me, I'm going to reward you greatly. That's an if-then theology. Rather, he's saying, I am your shield and I am going to be the one who will reward you. It's a fine hair, but I think it's an important one to differentiate. Now certainly believers can be impatient and we read this in verses 2 and 3. Abram said, O oh God, O oh Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. If you drop down to verse 8, you'll see a parallel. O oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Here he's asking about children. Next he's asking about land. Nothing in this is happenstance narrative. This is a very precise narrative in our Bibles. Well, technically we call this a lament or even a complaint. Sometimes in the Psalms, the psalmist lament or complain. This is not like a teenager or a two-year-old whining. A complaint, a complaint is a statement. A lament is, God, you have said this. My experience is not aligned with what you've said. And isn't that the believer's impatience? You never leave me. You never forsake me. My spouse has left me. I've got cancer. My parents are a, a, a disaster. My, my health issues, children issues, teenage issues, grandchildren issues. This is not what I thought you promised. And the believer often has the complaint and lament. We're not shaking our fist at God. Some may well, but we're not shaking. We're asking, wait a minute. I thought you said something and you've not yet delivered. In fact, if you saw when I read the thing, you, the passage, you, the, uh, when I read the passage, you gave me since I was childless. The one, where are you in this situation? So the lament, the complaint that Abram issues to God. Um, the promise included offspring. In fact, for Abram at this point, he's followed God blindly wherever he's leading him. And he's waiting for lots of kiddos. And he doesn't have one yet. Where are you? You haven't delivered. You told me something, but my experience is otherwise. And there's no doubt Abraham understood he was to have a son. You might well remember Psalm 127.3. Some of you, uh, if you're older parents uh, or grandparents, you might have gotten a little embroidered thing or needlepoint or a little plaque and you hung it over your firstborn's uh, crib that had Psalm 127.3. Children are a uh, gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Very important connection there. Children are a reward. Abram's talking about kids. God, you said you're my shield. God, you said you're the one who will reward me. Where are my children? That's what he's looking for. He's not looking for material blessings and prosperity. He's looking for children because that's precisely what the promise was about. Well, from Abram's perspective, there's no offspring. There's no inheritance. It's going to go to someone else, Eliezer of Damascus. He may be the servant mentioned later in Genesis 24, um, 50-50 leaning that way. What's going on here at the, at the bigger picture? Why is he talking about this? Now, understand, scholars 
don't agree on everything, but you'll find a good number of scholars that will argue there could be as many as 1,000, 1,200 people in this entourage now. This isn't a 20 or 30-something party walking around tents in the wilderness. This is a large group of people. We've picked up the slaves from Egypt. We've got the livestock. They have certainly, within the entourage of ranch hands that are moving around, they have had children. And so this is a growing population of a Bedouin people group who are moving around the desert. And then the Negev, when they go north, more fertile areas. It's going to get so large, we're going to split with Lot. Because there's so many people and so many animals, the land can't sustain them. It's a lot of folks. So one born in his household would be like someone born on the ranch, we might say, for our ear. Somebody born in this entourage. Obviously, it's not Sarai or Abram, or it'd be his son. And it's not even a relative. It's just one that was born. And maybe in that time frame, it was fresh on Abram's history. And he says, Eliezer is the one. And God says specifically in verse 4, No, one from your own body will be your heir. You're going to have a child. You're going to have a son, precisely. And he will be the heir. Derek Kidner has written two little tiny volumes on the book of Genesis. Don't let size deceive you. They are benchmark little synthetic commentaries. Anything Derek Kidner wrote, I have in my library. He can take this much information and put it in a sentence. And he writes, though not fully formed, Abram's faith, not unbelief, shines out in this answer. Though not fully formed, Abram wasn't doing everything right. Though not fully formed, Abram's faith, not his unbelief, shines out in this passage. God, you promised me this. I'm waiting for it. I've left Ur of the Chaldees. I'm following you. You promised me this. We might say, I'm doing my part, Lord. Where are you going to deliver on the promise of the reward being many children that I don't yet have? The lesson for you and me is easy. How impatient are we with God? Again, the Western mindset is not evil or wrong. It just complicates our Christianity. And we think in, in forms of if-then and career paths that go up and monetary reward that goes up and we get married and have children and live happily ever after and we have grandchildren and more happily ever after. I talked to a grandparent between the first and second hour and I said, remember that bumper sticker that said, have grandchildren first? And they said, well, no, you've got to have the other children to appreciate the grandchildren all the more. Um, we live in this if-then world. It's not terrible or horrible or bad, but our focal plane is like this, men and women. And our focal plane as we grow needs to be bigger. That God has a plan and a promise that cannot be thwarted. And yours and my role in that is to be faithful followers, even when it doesn't make perfect sense. Um, I've shared many, many times, I know you tire of my stories, but sorry you have to listen to them again. Um, I hate to wait. If Cindy and I go to a restaurant and it's slammed with an hour, they give me a thing that says it's an hour, I'm out of there. I, actually, I'm being very generous. I'm letting other people get ahead of me. <laughs> I will not wait an hour, hour. Now, if I'm with a couple of you know, friends that we can talk for an hour, hour and a half, but if I'm standing outside or I'm going to sit on some uncomfortable chair for an hour and a half, it's not worth it. I'll go back on Monday and Tuesday. I'll let the weekend people have the restaurant, and I'll go on a Monday or Tuesday night when I'll have to wait. Now, that's very selfish on one side of it. I'm just impatient. I hate to wait. Maybe you're 
a patient person, good for you. You can pray for me. I don't like to wait. I don't like to wait on God. Why, why can't you? You're sovereign, for goodness sakes. Why can't you just do this? Why must we go through all this trouble and suffering? Maybe you're there as well. Did you ever memorize Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13? A lot of us did at some stage in life. By the way, it's summer's here. Tomorrow's June 1. You believe it's June? The year's half over. Tomorrow's June 1. Uh, could you memorize five, five verses this summer? Pick five verses you kind of semi sort of know and commit it to memory. Put them on three by five cards. Forget technology. Write them on a card. Put them on your steering wheel when you drive. Put them on the mirror when you put your makeup on or if you're shaving in the morning. Uh, put, put them on your screensaver. Pick five verses and memorize You could totally do this this summer. It'd be easy capizzi. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken us, but such as is, what? Common to man. And with the temptation, what? He will provide a way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. Now, some of us memorized that verse years ago. And we say, okay, no temptation has overtaken me that everyone else doesn't face. Now, think with me about temptation and promise for a minute. God promises to be with us. He promises to help us. He promises to forgive us. But we're tempted 20, well, not 24-7. How long are we awake? 18-7. 19-7, we're tempted. If you have a piece of technology in front of you, if you have a screen at work or an iPad or an Android or something in your pocket, you're tempted. You and I are beat about the head and shoulders all day long with temptation. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life. Sometimes we can resist it. Sometimes we flee it. More times than we want to admit, we don't. We cave, we fall in, we sin, we, we, we fail. Now, we might be mournful and regret and repent of that. Or we might get a little indignatious once in a while and say, you know what, God, why don't you just stop these temptations? I mean, for goodness sakes, I don't want to sin. Why can't you remove that temptation from me? That sounds like a good prayer. Why don't you answer that, Lord? No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And oh, that nagging passage where Jesus is tempted too. So we're going to live in a context of temptation. When we fail, if we confess, he forgives. But if we fall into it again and again and again, we start to blame God. We remove ourselves from God. We get callous in our relationship with God. We miss the part of the passage that says the reason for this is you might be able to endure temptation. Think of it like working out at the gym. You start out with five pounds. Within six, eight, 12 weeks, you might be up to 40 pounds. You start out walking on the treadmill for three minutes and you're flush and fainting. And in three months, you're doing 30 minutes. It's endurance. Spiritual endurance is no different. So we are tempted all the time. But God's promised us some things. He'll never leave us or forsake us. You'll always forgive us. We're to be sanctified. We're to grow in your image. You know, why am I being tempted all the time? I was a 20, I'm going to tell you a story. And please, please don't be mad at me. It's not politically correct. G give me a little slack, will you? Okay? Say yes. Just say yes. Thank you. I know that's a setup, but just say yes. I'm 28 years old. I'm a brand new pastor serving a little church in Grand Prairie, Texas. We're going to lunch. Uh, three men in the car. One's 80-something years old in the back. The other two are elders. We, we're going to a cafeteria. We pull in. There's the, the crosswalk where people walk across to the cafeteria. And this uh, beautiful woman um, 
dressed, I would argue, a little bit interestingly, let's just put it that way, walks right in front of the car, four men looking forward, pastor, two elders, and this old guy in the back. The 83-year-old man says, I'll be glad when I'm old enough that that doesn't bother me. And I'm 28 going, I'm toast. I'm toast. No temptation has overtaken us, but such as is common. Endurance teaches you to look a person in the eye, not at their body. Endurance teaches you that the payoff is not a payoff. Endurance teaches you that I'll be healthier spiritually by God's kindness and grace and mercy if I run to obey by faith than if I give in to temptation, which is so stinking easy today. So when temptation comes, from our vantage point, and there's a lots, lots of ways we could illustrate this, but promises are delayed. Is this the abundant life you thought it was going to be? Years ago, there was a tract we used to hand out. Uh, God has a wonderful plan for your life. It really is a lousy title. God has a wonderful plan for your afterlife, maybe. <laughs> but some of us don't have wonderful plans. Some are hard. That's because we're learning to endure. You've heard me say it many times before. Don't ask God merely for a miracle. Ask him for an immovable faith. If you ask him for a miracle for your situation, he may well grant it. A number of us could tell stories where a person had cancer, spots on their liver, spots in their brain, spots in their abdomen. Six weeks later, the MRI was clear. I wish those stories were more true more often. But you know what? Sorry, we're still going to die. Forgive me for making fun of it, but Lazarus got a bum rap. He's dead and on his way to glory. And he's resurrected because God's going to show off that he can resurrect somebody from the dead. Today, Lazarus would have the media all over him. He'd write a book and have movie rights, and you'd never hear from him again. And to be a destitute guy going, i got to die again one day. I was on my way to glory out of all this mess. i got to go through it again. You see, a miracle only postpones the next thing. An immovable faith can face, no, can face anything. So don't merely ask him for a miracle. I mean, you can if you want. Ask him for an immovable faith. That no matter what the temptation that comes to you and me, no matter the problem, the disappointment, the disease, the heartbreak, that we'll have faith in Christ no matter what. Abram's saying to God, you've made this promise to me. I'm getting older. By the way, he'll be 99 when Christ returns to talk to him again. And he still doesn't have a kid. 99. That's why he's a hero of faith. And he doesn't believe it when God tells him. And Sarah, I certainly didn't believe it. Well, God in his great patience and kindness assures him that the promise is good. Verse 4, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So we have a second time in this text, the word of the Lord came to him. God's reply is clear, it's strong. Eliezer is not going to be your heir. Something else is going to happen. He's going to take him outside and tell him to count the stars and look at them. God credits his faith in 
to Abram as righteous, verse, verse 6, then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned to him as righteousness. Abram is a character study in faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going to a place which he was to receive an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. That to me is a delicious definition of faith. Not knowing where we're going. Wait, you said there was going to be a reward in lots of kiddos. Not knowing where I'm going. That's faith. Paul will spend all of Romans chapter 4 explaining Genesis 15, 6. Righteousness being reckoned to him. He'll spend most of chapter 3 of Galatians explaining 15, 6. James and James 2 will refer to Genesis 15, 6 as a benchmark. Sir, this is a key verse in our theological thinking about righteousness being reckoned to a person. Rob did a great job a couple of weeks back talking about Melchizedek. Zadek is the word righteousness. Melech the king. So Zadek here is another wordplay taking us back in the text of chapter 14. The two things that cement the story here is the reliability of God's word and the reality of Abram's faith. The reliability, twice the word comes to reaffirm the promise and the reality of Abram believing him. As Derek Kidner says, not fully formed, but he does believe him. He trusts him. To believe and to be righteous are two key terms through our entire scripture. Uh, a lot of these words mean everything, therefore they mean nothing. Religious words. Believe. Don't overthink and overwork the word belief. Belief is trust. When you tell your children, uh, when church is over, we're going to go out to lunch, they believe you. The, is, are the pools open yet? Swim pools open yet? You know, pools are God's gift to mothers with small children. And you tell, I'm gonna, we're going to go to the pool. Now, do they believe you? Absolutely. They believe you so much, they pester you endlessly. It's time to go to the pool. Let's go to the pool. Let's go to the pool. I mean, they got their little thing on. They're ready to go out the door, right? They're dressed and ready to go. They believed you when you told them that. My daughter, who was the extraordinary athlete in her teenage years, is here today. Jesse, phenomenal soccer player. If you make a goal, we're going to buy you an icy. First thing the kid did when she made a goal, I get an icy. She believed mom and dad when they told her something. Don't overwork it. The reliability of the person that says something, do you believe in them? Reliability in God's word. He said it, do you believe it? Now, imputing and righteous are a little more complicated. Let me say it this way. It's the, a right attitude that follows with a right response. A right attitude that follows with a right response. It's different from belief because God makes us righteous. He grants us the faith to believe, but righteousness is nuanced. It's the right attitude that results in a right action. You can't gin that up. The sin nature can never be righteous. Righteousness, therefore, has to be imputed. Here the word is reckoned to him. Some of your Bibles say credited later in the New Testament. And that's a great way of illustrating it. It's an old illustration. It works pretty well. You go home today, and someone has accounted, they've dropped $20 million into your checking account. The first thing you're going to do Monday morning is you're going to contact your bank and be sure it wasn't an error because you're certain it is. They say, no, someone made an anonymous deposit of $20 million. What would you do if you had 20 million bucks dropped in your account tonight? 
You probably pay off your house, any debt you had, school loans, car payments. You might take a vacation. You might seek out some financial counsel. But that money was reckoned to you. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It was imputed to you. Faith is a relationship that we have when we trust in Christ and Christ alone. Once we do that, righteousness is imputed to us so we can have a relationship with him so that our actions are conformed and transformed to a right set of attitudes that result in a right set of actions. That's moving from the focal plane being here to the focal plane being here. So when Abram is declared righteous, it's by God's work in his life not because he was a great guy. In fact, he's going to fail again and again and again. But God's going to call him his friend because he still follows him. That's why an immovable faith is more precious than a miracle. God wants you to be faithful even though life stinks. He wants you to be faithful even though your experience tells you to give up. He wants you to be faithful even though it's hard. He wants you and me to be faithful because he's teaching us in ways we can't comprehend. He's transforming us into what we do not know. And this life is a vapor. It's fog on a mirror. It's condensation on a window. It's a spark that flies up in the smoke of a fire. It's over and done, and we begin an eternal life with him that's far different than we imagine. You know, in my sanctified imagination... When Christ is in this Bedouin camp with Abram, he takes him by the hand after he's twice told him in the word, and he takes him outside and says, now look up in the stars in the sky. And if you can count them, Abram, I know how many there are. Abram, I can see ones you can't see. Abram, I've given them all names. And what he would say to you and me, the Hubble hasn't begun to see what I've made. They're innumerable. Abram, so shall your descendants be. And what strikes me about that passage is there's no response from Abram. And I doubt Abram ever looked at the night skies the same way. So tonight, maybe you go out if it's clear. And you look up at the skies. He made a promise to a patriarch. And that promise hasn't changed. That the Christ is going to come through that promise. The promised one. And the descendants of that Christ will be innumerable. And if you trusted in Christ and Christ alone, you and I are part of that innumerable number of people. And remind yourself, as they're suspended in orbits way beyond our comprehension, that he is the same creator, sustainer who put them there, who knows you and me by name. And loves you. And forgives us again and again and again. And when you doubt, just look up in the sky. He made them. He named them. He numbered them to the last one. He's not waiting on the Hubble to tell us how many there are. Or to guess how many there are. That's the same God who redeemed you, who declares you righteous, who calls you his own. Men and women of faith, even when we fail, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense, 
even when our experienced and well-intentioned people tell us otherwise, will you believe him at his word, regardless of how you feel, regardless of your experience? That's a maturing faith. Father, we love you. We want to love you well. Help us never to look at the night sky the same way, that your promises are reliable. Help our faith to be real. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.